to another episode of Appalachian Anglican. I'm Caleb, and I'm here with... I'm Father Mitch. Adam. And I'm Daryl. And this week's topic is actually going to be, I think it's going to be an interesting one. I know I say that every week, but maybe we just have nothing but interesting topics. I hope so, and I hope no one goes to sleep. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, today's topic is going to be the Anglican schools of thought. And that's, how do you want to break that up, Father Daryl? Are we talking about different schools in different places? Is one no, better than another? No, no, yeah, no, not schools as in universities, although universities and schools, like as brick and mortar or even online institutions, are representative. Um, so one of the other words that's used is not schools, but streams. So three streams theology has become increasingly popular since Robert Weber's stuff on liturgical renewal a few decades back. We're going to talk about some of these things, but I thought to kind of kick it off, we would talk about the three dominant streams or schools right now, and then we'll delve into some particularities about them. But we would start with just the practical experience you guys have had. So, uh, Father Mitch, why don't you lead us out here on what was, of the three streams, what what have you found to be, or what, just generally speaking, we'll start, what, what's your experience practically? Practically, of course, um, and it basically all goes back to when you initially have your conversion experience of, and being told and then through Bible studies and stuff that speaking in tongues was gone to stay away from people who did that, mm-hmm. which immediately prompted my wife and I both to say, why are they so opposed to something that's said in the Bible? And so that led us into receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we had always had a, an affinity toward the Eucharist. And of course, growing up, it was only called communion because that's what you did in the Methodist church or the Baptist church or whatever. And then when we found we were exposed to an Episcopal church back in the 80s that was charismatic, evangelical, and liturgical, all of a sudden our hearts just were warmed by it and just really felt like this is where we really belong. And so that's how we really came into that idea of the three streams of and uh, walking in that. Did you find that one of them was easier and one of them more difficult? Or maybe two out of three. Uh, Bishop John said uh, last year he, when he was here teaching, he said, you know, when it comes to this, the three streams, for some, it's a, a river, a trickle, and a creek. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd say we probably just um, jumped right in and enjoyed all three of them uh, because of our early exposure and the idea of evangelism you know, was very strong. But also we knew and understood the workings of gifts of the Holy Spirit. But finding that structure of liturgy, it just really felt like everything had come together. And so when we found that place, we thought, this is what we want. And even when we moved from Virginia to Tennessee, our initial prayers were, God, we have to find a liturgical charismatic church, you know, because we knew if you have those two, you're definitely going to have the evangelism or evangelical side. Great, great. Um, Caleb? You're probably the most recent, I think, at the table today for experiencing liturgy, but liturgy not treated separately from life in the Spirit. By the way, since you are the producer for this podcast, I do want to do an episode this season on liturgy as the visible quality of being. Okay. Okay. But back to the original point, uh, what's your what's your what's your practical take for people who think, man, I can't go in there where they wear them robes. Jesus didn't wear robes. He doesn't wear one now. Well, I don't I don't know if I'm the best one for this, because even growing up in Pentecostal, like 
definitely heavy in the uh, charismatic side of things, I'd say. Uh, I don't know. I always kind of felt a uh, calling or a, I don't know if it's an affinity towards like the kind of Catholic, just because um, my Aunt Catherine was Lutheran. So even being like in one of those services, there's something I liked about it where there's kind of more of that tradition. Even I forget. I don't know if it was for a school trip or it was just uh, it was something where I was like in like a Roman Catholic service. And that stuff kind of made sense to me, but I was like, well, I guess they don't have the spirit, though, do they? <laughs> but I, <laughs> where I was just like, I really like this, but I'm like, I don't know. what. And I, that's when I even kind of started thinking about the different things. But I don't know. Because when I start thinking about it more, I think of the fact of even like we talked about that one study that was done probably like in the early 2000s. It was about like, what do you think a holy man is? Yeah. And even for me, like when I sit there and I think, of, especially in today's culture, and I don't, maybe this is just me, but like when I think of... I'm not saying I'm like anti-capitalist. I love capitalism. I love it. But I'm saying like- Cheap hamburgers. Yeah. (laughs) But if if I were to choose the guy with the robe and he's wearing the robe for traditional reasons, or if I see the guy go up there with skinny jeans and the- which I wear some skinny jeans. No problem with that sometimes. But like- Is is this a sacramental rite of confession? Do we need absolution for those skinny jeans or what? (laughs) Well, I don't know. (laughs) They're stretchy, so I don't know. Okay. (laughs) They don't feel skinny. Yeah. (laughs) Or it's like, would I rather have like the rope or would I rather have some guy come up there in the flashy suit or would I have some guy come up there and make me, I don't know. It's not like I feel less, but it's just like, I don't want the focus to be on, you know, the person. Yeah. So there's different, as long as there's a reason behind what you do and is there, is there a connection to it as well? And I think really people start to think of like, do we want the showmanship of like the people there or we do want, you know, God to be here with us, you know, in that way. That's the only thing I would start to question for people, but I don't know. That's what I kind of think about the whole thing. Just of, a touch of what yeah, I think. Sure. Of the of these three schools of so to speak, have you found one to be more difficult since you've been here? Uh, like like put yourself cuz you've been here for a while now. So so put yourself 6 months after you got here. So when the liturgy wasn't as foreign, right? Yeah. So if you go from that perspective, was there any of the ones that was more or less for you? Uh, I know it's kind of hard to pinpoint because when it comes to the tradition, like I like that kind of thing anyway. I didn't realize how much I liked it. Even, I don't know, once I started getting into it, I can't really say. I don't know because I kind of, I, I feel like maybe the harder part may have been actually the weird thing might be the charismatic part of it. Just because, I don't know, coming up through it, I kind of grew really numb to it mm. after, or after like years, especially just different things happening. So the traditions kind of actually brought me back into the charismatic. So that's why I might not be the best one to ask about this stuff. No, so. it's a good point because there's a lot of people that grew up in Pentecostal and uh, the the charismatic movement that then turned away from it because they realized a good portion of it wasn't actually the Holy Spirit. As much as the Holy Spirit was involved, there was a lot of stuff that was thought that was the Holy Spirit, but it wasn't. And this is where tradition isn't just... Let me, let me give an example for tradition. Um, tradition is melody. And scripture is text. Right. Right? So the think of like Silent Night or Happy Birthday or any other song that everybody pretty much intuitively knows because they've grown up knowing it. That's what tradition is. The text is doesn't change. Like the words don't change. But how do you sing that song? And so when we talk about the tradition of the church, we're talking about the melody that is is representative of the entire choir of the church. And so when you start to sing the song again, as the church has always sung, and you realize that the Holy Spirit, one, never left, and that he's still working through it as a means of, of shaping people, shaping you, shaping me. Mm. Okay. Adam, how about you? Yeah, so uh, for those that don't know, me and Caleb are brothers. So our, obviously, what? 
our experience growing what? yeah for those of you uh, that struggle mm. to differentiate between our voices uh, that is why uh, you know the same common factor of uh, that's mother. why your beards are the same color yeah that <laughs> the red beard uh, yes that is why hey it's amber all right <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we had a very uh, similar experience uh, growing up in a classical Pentecostal world, and um, the, the evangelical side of it, um, even these three streams are hard, because the, how do you define them, as they originated or as they are today? That's what we're going to get into in about two so, minutes. <laughs> so uh, yeah. if, if we would define it as evangelical as a personal, like that personal attachment and identification in faith, um, then yeah, I mean, that... Very much so. It's just part of being in that Pentecostal world because it can't just be for somebody else. It has to be for you. So, like, fully immersed, fully embraced. Uh, our, our our dad was a, a youth pastor at a Pentecostal church. So that was very classical Pentecostal. I then went off to uh, Bible college at uh, Assemblies of God School, Central Bible College, which is no longer. Uh, rest in peace. Yes. Uh, great institution, uh, great place, uh, great, had a great heritage of training ministers. Um, if I could start a Bible college like CBC and have that on our campus when we get it going and have, you know, 150 to 200 people studying the scripture and engaging in mission, sign me up. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, if, it's a really interesting atmosphere. Um, but I, I would say that wasn't so much a classical Pentecostal. That was just uh, probably a borderline neo-Pentecostal, yeah. if I had to uh, put it with some sprinklings of like... Uh, That's because you could go to the movies when you were there. Yes, yeah. and, and, but you still had the people who were classical Pentecostals, like myself, like all the people from Arkansas, you know, they, yes. <laughs> they yes. came there. Shout out to our buddy Robbie. <laughs> um, and then went from there, actually, and I, I got a... Um, position at a church, at a four-square church. So that's a, a little bit more on the charismatic side of things, um, is how I would explain my experiences with the greater organization. Um, so definitely fully immersed in that. Leaving my, my position there to, and I, I joined the Army. Um, that, I know, change of gears. And um, when Was the, that charismatic or, or even, you, like, what was that one? You know, I, I think for me, it, it drew me to form and tradition. Mm. Um, so actually, I remember uh, going. Caleb was in the Air Force, and so I remember going to his uh, basic training or whatever they call it. Um, I, I I interpret everything. Do you through. guys get basic training? BMT. Okay. Yeah. So I interpret everything through the Army lingo because we're the best. We're the biggest. We're the best. Anyways, um, so I remember being being in so shock and awe of just the ceremony and the way things were done, and that is actually one of the things that drew me to the military was just that discipline and the, the form that was there. And uh, so joined the Army, and very much so, like, your form, everything is symbolic, and that, and that symbolism changes the way that you are. And everything that's done is done for a reason, and in the midst of chaos, there's, like, a, there's an understood, I, there's understood ideas. Yeah. And so um, I, I was coming out of the, the military, I was very— I'm still I'm still in the National Guard. I, I, I say that a lot. Getting out of the military, I just went from the active duty to the reserve component, which felt like getting out of the military. Um, <laughs> so I remember just being very discontent with just the regular, just run of the mill evangelical. Like like let's just plan a church like a business, and 
and run it like that. Very involved in a church plant, watch it grow, great people there. That's nothing against um, the pastors there at that church, but I was growing just increasingly, like, just I wasn't content. I was like, there's something missing. And um, coming back to West Virginia, um, meeting back up with Father Darrell and, and starting to come to Ascension, and then that's when I started to really experience the more the tradition or the Catholic um, aspect of the three streams. And fell in love with it because it, I just found that it, it created an anchor for everything else. It it almost seemed like there's something to, like I said, to anchor. The only way I know how to explain it is actually in, in mathematical terms. So if, you, if you're familiar with what a sine or a cosine looks like on a graph, it's a waving, it's like a wavelength is what it looks like. And for me, putting the tradition in there made it so that cosine or that wavelength was not as tall, like the bottom was not as low, and the top was not as high, and it brought it to an even, like a little bit more of a straight line because it anchors it, and it sets parameters for where you can go to the left and to the right. And for me, it, it, it really was that, that anchoring something that just I really appreciated, something that I could draw from. And I remember looking back at a lot of these traditions or what a lot of these people were saying, but it was to really proof text on why I could be a charismatic yeah. on why I could be a Pentecostal. Like, that's why I use their writings to just say, oh, he said he talked about speaking in tongues or he talked about this happening. Never actually looking at all the uh, other common factors that they had, and that was Catholicity. So th- that's kind of my journey into it all and uh, experiencing all three. Okay, good. And then I guess to your other question of um, which one do I have the most difficult time, I guess, embracing. And I kind of alluded to it at the beginning of how do you define these things? Right. And I, I run into this a lot with um, different people I talk to who are still very much so immersed in the Pentecostal charismatic world. And um, I, I would say for me, like Caleb is the Pentecostal side of things um, defined in the way that I grew up defining it. So if we define it as chaotic times around the front of the church, um, then yeah, I, ha- I have a hard time embracing that. Yeah, because it it just does not seem to match other things that I, got, that I look at throughout history and what the church has been doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's bad history and bad interpretation to read back into the passages in the Book of Acts what we see in the mid to the bulk of the twentieth century is well that's how they did church. I was reading Yaroslav Pelikan's interpretation, his commentary on the book of Acts uh, 13 years ago, 10 years ago, something like that. And he, when he was commenting on Acts 2 about the church in Jerusalem, he gets to that spot where he points out that the church was praying the prayers. They weren't just praying in general, but it was the prayers. And that kind of kicked off, like that cracked open a door for me that was like, wait a second, you mean they weren't just a, whole, a small group throughout the city having lamb every evening and they just laid hands on each other and prayed and spoke in tongues? The prayers means there's form here. And in a traditional Pentecostal, in a in a neo-charismatic or charismatic, neo-charismatic third wave and the what's now the buzz phrase, the the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation, that whole continuity. And then you've got other movements within it like Latter Rain, uh, Word of Faith, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the Pentecostal or charismatic stream is not monolithic by any stretch. And so you get a, a very diverse set of pluralities within it, and each one of those offshoots creates its own, at least its own denomination, if not a couple different ones, that then filter 
the way that they read scripture and tradition through their primary experiences of what they believe is the Holy Spirit. And I think a lot of the times the Holy Spirit is working. I'm not saying that he's not. But the, the hermeneutic that gets created is seriously, seriously flawed. But this is a problem within the, quote, evangelical side of things as well. Then, and you see this going back to, to um, I don't want to put it square, squarely at the feet of Wesley, um, because he, he is dealing with other issues that existed in the church in his day. But this takes us into the more historical side of things, like what do these terms mean and where do they come from? So um, the let, let me start with, because I've just said a lot about it, let me start with the, the, the charismatic or the spirit-filled Pentecostal side. For those that don't know, the Pentecostal movement officially started in 1901 in Topeka, Kansas, at Faith Bible School, where Charles Parham was the director. Now, Parham was a holiness Methodist leader who had uh, who believed in the annihilation of the soul. So he didn't believe that hell was eternal, but that hell—he said, I do believe in hell, but I believe in a hell so hot that your soul can't exist in it. So he believed in, an anni- in annihilationism. Um, he also believed in the— um, the coming of, uh, like, uh, I, don't, I don't mean this in, as, in, in a derogatory way, I just don't know how else to describe it, and quote, super saints, that there would be a classification of people that would be evangelists that could teleport around the world and speak in languages they wanted to. Um, the, take like the Philip in Acts chapter 8, but make that 144,000 people, right? So he starts to put those pieces together. And the early Pentecostal movement also coincides with the rise of spiritism in general in the United States. So think about, uh, you know, uh, why Edgar Casey. Yeah. Edgar Casey, Wyatt Earp's brother, um, talking about some of that stuff. It was very popular. The seances, Ouija boards had only been invented in the late 1800s and they started to gain more and more, um, cultural awareness at this time in history. So there's a rising surge of spiritualism. And in that you get this, uh, moving of the Holy spirit. And I say that because I do believe the Holy spirit was really at work doing, a great number of signs that people weren't looking for in the same way that when we go back and we look at Acts 19 and Paul's um, aprons, his sweat cloths, because he's a tent maker, and tent makers sweat. So the sweat rags that were collecting the, the sweat from his body that he wore while making tents are what were used to cast out demons and to heal the sick in Ephesus. And Luke says they were extraordinary miracles, meaning this didn't happen wherever he went, and it wasn't happening in a lot of other places. Why was the Holy Spirit doing this in Ephesus? Because the Ephesians were sorcerers and magicians. And so after they see this extraordinary demonstration of power through Paul's sweat rags, not through consecrated elements that Paul's blessing— they're seeing the Holy Spirit display the superiority of the gospel over their particular fetishes and magic rites. So they have the big book burning thing. So I think a lot of the early Pentecostal experiences are things the Holy Spirit's doing as a counteraction against spiritualism, and it means to wake up the church. If if any of us today were to go back to 1901 and then 1906 is when it it breaks out at Azusa Street, but if we were to go back to any one of those periods and be part of those prayer meetings and then go across town to any of the churches that were there, the majority of the mainline denominations were preaching the gospel. They had weekly prayer meetings. They had weekly celebrations of the Eucharist. They were not in any contemporary sense what we would consider dead. I'm not saying they all were, all were but the, the level of faith and belief in the majority of those churches is much higher than what you see in most contemporary Pentecostal churches today. I'm not slamming Pentecostalism. I'm just saying put it in its context. Well, you, you get this 1901 at Topeka 
And really what, uh, what happens is Parham is heading up to uh, Zion, Illinois, to preach for John Alexander Dowie. And Dowie was a healing minister in the 1800s who lost his mind, you know, said he was the prophet of Eli prophet Elijah returned and whatnot as he got older. But Dowie did for a long time have, have a profound miracle ministry so that medicine was against the law in the town he started. Well, if everybody's getting healed... Right. And so you, that's a big part of what was going on in Zion, Illinois back then. Well, Parham goes up to preach for Dowie. But before he leaves, he tells the 40 or so Bible students to study the book of Acts to see if there's any evidence for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because as a, as a holiness Methodist, he had all, Parham and the groups with him had already been using the work, the, the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit to refer to entire sanctification or some second work of grace post-conversion. And that comes from John Fletcher, who was an Anglican priest with Wesley in the 1700s. And Fletcher got that from sermons in the Church of England around Pentecost and the preaching in the churches in the 1700s, insisting that you needed a personal Pentecost and how that was uh, the corollary with the rite of confirmation. All right. Now, jump back to 1906 or 1901 there, Topeka, Parham comes back and uh, they have all come to the conclusion that speaking in tongues is the evidence that you see in the book of Acts because there's five accounts in the book of Acts where there's an experience of the Holy Spirit, whether it's called the baptism or infilling, subsequent to conversion or right around the time of conversion where they speak, where there's details. Three of them have significant details and the only constant sign in those three examples is speaking in other tongues. So Agnes Osmond was a woman that was part of that group of students and said to Parham and the others, pray for me that I might receive this. So they lay hands on her, and the history says that she started speaking in Chinese and did so for three days. Well, this had a, a pretty uh, divisive effect even in the Bible school, so it split. And a group of them left, and another group stayed and continued to work there at the Faith Bible School. What ends up happening is, a, is a, a gentleman by the name of William Seymour gets connected to this, sits outside in the hallways because of the, the segregation laws that existed, hears Parham's teaching, believes it, and then starts traveling and ends up at Azusa Street or on Azusa Street, A to Z USA in Los Angeles in 19, 1906, in the spring of 06. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead, Caleb. Uh, he was at Bonnie Bray Street first, and they outgrew the meetings there. Even though Parham hadn't had this experience in the Holy Spirit, or Parham, Seymour hadn't had this experience in the Holy Spirit, the meetings began to grow exponentially, and so they had to move to an old mission that they converted, a stable they converted into a mission, where they had basically for three years nonstop prayer meetings, miracles, healings, the dead, uh, not the dead, but the blind seeing, uh, the, the gift of tongues, weird babel of tongues was across the newspaper, um, Massive events like that going on. And you got guys like Frank Bartleman, who was eyewitness there, a big part of the, the recorder of events, who's in touch with Evan Roberts of the Welsh Revival in 1904. So, and then you have a, a, a similar experience taking place in South Korea, a South Korean Pentecost. Lots of that happening at the beginning of the 20th century as a fruition of, or I won't even say fruition necessarily, but the development of movements within large chunks of the Methodist churches and all the denominations it created in the latter part of the 1800s in the United States, and then how that spread, you know, around the world. Well, for the sake of brevity, when you get into the latter 1920s, 1930s, a lot of the people of, in the Pentecostal movements, because they had to create their own denominations, because they were, they were very disruptive. They would go in and disrupt preachers and say, you're dead, your church isn't alive. They, they, they did some of, a lot of that stuff. Um, they create their own denominations. 
And some of them become very large very quick, and some never became very large, but they became influential, and, and there's a whole history here to that. But late 1920s and the 1930s, they start to complain about the absence of the fire. The glory's gone. It's a revivalistic exp- uh, movement. So if there's no moving of the Holy Spirit, if I'm not moved, if I'm not, there's no manifestation, God's not here. Because by that point, there aren't any sacraments for these people. Not really. There are ordinances that represent my devotion. And if my devotion is real, I'd experience the Holy Spirit. I'll speak in tongues more. This is not everybody in the movement, okay? This is just big, big, big brush here. That gives way to the latter rain renewal. And the early Pentecostals, a lot of them persecute the latter rain because they think they're excessive, when really they're just like their grandparent or their parents were, right? And that's in the 1940s. Then you get the tent revivals in the 50s with A.A. A. Allen and Jack Coe and Oral Roberts. Then you get the charismatic renewal that hits with Dennis Bennett, who was an Episcopal priest in 1959. James Polkinghorne uh, in the 1960s. Then it goes mainline beyond the Episcopal Church into the Methodist, the Lutheran, uh, and the Roman Catholic churches. So by 1977, you've got a meeting in at Arrowhead uh, Stadium in St. Louis, no. which... Kansas City. Kansas City. I'm sorry. Please. Yes. Please. Gotcha. <laughs> I, I, I was there. You were there. Yeah. And the 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 people and you could you could yeah. you know say yes or no to this, but everybody that I've talked to about that and in the articles I've read about what happened, there was this belief that now there was going to be a more sweeping event of spirit filled activity across the churches and across the world, and that as much as it happened to a certain extent, the the more immediate sense of what would happen didn't happen. It didn't turn out the way that they thought. And in a lot of ways, it's like the early Pentecostals at Azusa Street believed that the particular experiences they were having with the Holy Spirit meant Jesus was coming that much sooner. And so this is where you see them become the missionaries of the one-way ticket. They're so convinced Christ is coming, they don't, they, they just, they're like the Moravians. They pack their stuff in their, their caskets when they go. They don't take anything with them. And half the missionaries fail when they get overseas when the other half are successful. However, we want to qualify that. You know, I don't want to sound like people who die when they go overseas aren't successful. I don't mean it like that, but you guys got me. That that's just the the, the positive trajectory of, of the Pentecostal charismatic movement, right? And when you take it into the main line and take it to the for the Anglican perspective, uh, this this Anglican side that that received this move through um, through Bennett, he says he you know, realized that what his Pentecostal friends were describing as their experience was what he was saying in his prayer book. The liturgy has the language that's representative of the experience, even though it hadn't been something that they had been experiencing themselves. That That's a very big picture of, a broad picture for contemporary charismatic influence, right? Evangelical. Well, what is that? Man, if people aren't trying to figure this one out, you know, because like, what's the difference between a traditional Pentecostal and a charismatic, but where they rank the gift of tongues, but they're all still speaking in tongues. So it's kind of easier to keep the umbrella there. But what is an evangelical? Not even evangelicals who, not even people who said they were evangelicals 20 years ago would want to claim that they are today because of the way it's changed its meaning. I mean, you see uh, Falwell Jr. came out a couple days ago and said he's not. That's, uh, I mean... If you watch any social media whatsoever, hashtag exvangelical. So. Yeah, yeah. So what? So where do they come from historically? Well, I mean, you could argue Luther is. Uh, Luther kicks off an evangelical movement. You, you could argue that because of the word, the phrase evangelical. And that's because the Bible's evangelical and the church had been in dark ages until the age of Luther. <sighs> where is Luther when he's told to read the New Testament? 
sitting in a confession booth. He's sitting in a confessional, and his his confessor says, Martin, have you read the New Testament? So was the church ignorant of the promise that was in the gospel in the days of the Reformation just before it? No. But did it get all the public uh, publicity? Did, did it get the social media press? No. The indulgences did. But to say that it was completely gone is bad history. So you could argue Luther, but I think more more pronouncedly you could say the evangelical side becomes very much part of what's going on um, with the Wesleys and Whitfield and the great evangelical revival, and they're pressing personal conversion. And, and, and that starts in the, in the 1700s. And so you're, you're, you're pressing personal conversion, personal holiness. You have to have this experience of the Holy Spirit. And again, is, are, is any of that contrary or an, an addition to what was already existing in the church? No. And this gets me, and, and I realize I've done a very truncated version of uh, evangelical here, but uh, we'll just have to come back and do another one on it if people are interested. But it, it brings us to where I want to kind of round out how we're talking about this and reflecting on it this morning, is that movements or streams are not to be confused with the body. And that takes us into the Catholic side. Because as Anglicans in the canons of 1604, I mean, it was such an important point for the Church of England that they put in there that if anyone says that the Church of England or the Anglican Communion, Anglican Church, as it it grows to become, is not part of Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church, they are ipso facto excommunicate. So we are completely, entirely Catholic, just not Roman. Because the Catholic Church is not a movement. It's the, it's the body of Christ that has the historic root through the apostolic succession to what Jesus establishes at Easter, whereas the evangelical movement, the charismatic movement, the Pentecostal movement, are, are, are something akin, follow me here, they're akin to Franciscan or Dominican or Jesuit movements that create an order that have a form about them, that have a piety about them, but they still subsist or exist within, in those cases, the Roman Catholic Church. But as, as far as the evangelical and the charismatic, um, and even in lots of parts, ports, parts of the Anglican world, the liberal contingency, as much as we disagree with them, and they want to call them to repentance here, uh, for rejecting the virgin birth and the physical resurrection and the inspiration of Scripture and the the concept of the of the priesthood, et cetera, et cetera. Wait, these are Christians. <laughs> well, they're dressing like that. Um, Archbishop Foley Beach and Gerald McDermott's book that came out a couple years back on the future of Orthodox Anglicanism rightly called them neo pagan. But are they still? Have they still gone through the waters of baptism with the profession of faith? They have, and so because of that, we still want to appeal to them as brothers that they would repent even, you know, doing things they ought not to do. But all of that, all of those are something akin to orders because they create a particular piety, a particular hermeneutic, but it's all got to be set within the broader confines of the Catholic Church and not become its own institution and not become its own um, denomination. And this is the danger that we've seen, in a, especially because of the, the religious freedom we has, have as Western people, as Americans, is that whenever you get a renewal movement, the renewal movement will say the Holy Spirit's led us, and they'll go away from the church, historically, and create an entirely different system. And that system will be very effective, 
because the Holy Spirit's been working in those people. They are preaching the Bible. It'll be very effective, maybe 125 years, maybe. And then it, if it hasn't had three life cycles within it, it completely turns into something else. And find me a Pentecostal denomination that started between 1901 and 1920 that hasn't redefined itself by the particular movements or splintered into a bunch of other groups since then. And you see this same problem in the larger Protestant Episcopal Church, the Anglicanism historically in the United States, is that it, as it adopted these particularities, it continued to schism in ways that it didn't need to because it was defaulting. It was, it was, it was deforming what it had in the Reformation. It was, it was, for, it, it was morphing away from the Catholicity that is the anchor for the entire body of Christ. I mean, to parallel it, can you be a Roman Catholic without the Pope? No, you're something else. You know, can you be part of the Orthodox Church, um, churches, I should say, be part of the Orthodox churches and not love the Greek fathers or the Russian father? Like, you, it's, it's a, it's a, can you be an Anglican, which is the Catholic Church in England, as the Caroline Divines so wonderfully emphasized, and John Jewell and many other of the bishops? Can you be an Anglican and not rightly love and value personal conversion and the strong, bold proclamation of Scripture, knowing that the Holy Spirit confirms the Word, right? No, you, you're becoming something else. And so when we're talking about these schools or these streams, we want to keep in mind that there are wonderful redemptive gifts in the movements, and we never want to make the movement the church. And that's a warning to everybody, wherever we are on that. What I hear you saying <laughs> okay, is that you don't want three streams— you want one big stream with two smaller streams in, like bolstering it. I would back away from the metaphor altogether and say I want a university <laughs> with different schools of study. I want a university that has different disciplines. So I want, uh, not I, I think it's better, it's a better metaphor to have, is think about the, a university, a public university or state university or Oxford or whatever. They have school of biology, school of mathematics, school of history, school of uh, whatever the kind of science is in the Catholic Church not Roman but in the Catholic Church there's Rome there's Moscow there's Constantinople there's Canterbury there's America right and within that you have these other departments that are all studying but they're all working together as one corporate whole and so when we think about the the to go back to three streams for a second charismatic evangelical and Catholic. Well, truly, you only have the Catholic body. That's all you have. So the Catholic is the body, but the evangelical is the body moving, and the charismatic is the body breathing. You can't make the movement the body. You can't make the breath the body. But if you, if you try to take the breath and make it a body, you'll get a puff, in, a puff of air for a few generations. But then there's nothing left because it wasn't the body anymore. It, it morphed into something else. Or if you take the movement that the body has, so you, you, you knock a domino over with, your, with the body, you know, so, but the body quits moving. Well, eventually you run out of dominoes and the movement stops. And so you see this kind of pattern all through Christian history, but more pronouncedly now. The difference in Christian history is that the all right, Caleb, help me. The difference between in Christian history is that if that when this stuff went on in the early centuries of the church, the church just said, you guys are heretical because you're schismatics, because you broke and you won't exist in the future. 
We don't have to, uh, what you see in the, in the later medieval church or even the early part of the Reformation where they're, they're burning people and doing torture and that kind of stuff. They didn't do that in the, in the early centuries. They just said, you're not going to exist. And I think that's one of the ways to look at the errors we see today. As you take a historical approach, the innovations are going to die. Just don't be the guy advocating for them. You know, you don't want your name associated with that history. Advocate for what has been believed by the church all through history. And you'll see within that strong evangelical conversion necessity, strong experiences in the spirit, knowing that the manifestations will vary, but walking in the fullness of what the scripture outlines for us. That's kind of, I would go that route more than I would, you know, a drip and a run and a, you know, creek. (laughs) Well, I mean, because the way that you're, explaining it really is that there's you can't separate one of the streams and still be the church right like one of the streams is essential to still be a body of water like we're like to not be catholic we're talking about something completely different like we're not even in the same um classification anymore right right. Uh, and i i think i look at that practically how that plays out like how how much and well, I guess the next question would be, is Catholic and having the traditions of the church, are they synonymous? Almost. And, I, and here's what I mean by that. If you are in a church that's liturgical, they're all liturgical, but one that's intentionally liturgical, historical, sacramental, and you believe it, you're approaching in faith, are you not going to experience the life of God when the scripture is read? Are you not going to receive Christ when the Eucharist is celebrated? Are you not going to be called to confess your sins and to receive absolution? So the issue is not the form. The issue is the absence of faith. The liturgy is neither dead nor alive. It's the people that are. And the liturgy doesn't make you alive or dead. It's your response to the grace that's being given you by God through the means of grace. Right. So if you look historically, when has the church existed or you could say, when has the Catholic Church been around where there weren't people who were not having profound experiences in the Spirit? We call them saints. We call them the mystics, the visions, the dreams, the prophecies, uh, the healings. You know, they're all over the place. Um, who preserved Scripture? Who, who set up the, the, the meaning and understanding of the Scripture? And so I think we end up falling—and that, that would be, you know, the, it's the Church that does that. But I think we fall into this a category mistake— when we make the Catholic stream synonymous with just some liturgy and funny hats. Those are customs that the 39 Articles lays out for us that, you know, the, the ordinary, the bishop can, can set or the local province can set on how they'd like things to be done. That's something where there's permitted variation. You know, you, we see that even in the New Testament. So, but there are other things that are not. You know, how, five times in First Corinthians, Paul talks about all the churches when he's laying down some edicts, and he's saying this has to be the case everywhere because I'm making it that way. Um, but that goes against the evangelical and, in some cases, the charismatic understanding, because there's Paul being what they call authoritative. If you don't agree with me, you can't be here. Well, that's authoritative. And well, God gave me freedom, based on what? Well, He gave me freedom. Oh, you mean from the Constitution? The, 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 there are differences here, right? And there are things for us as, as Western, as Appalachians, who value our freedom. And I'm, I'm not saying, you know, go listen to the first person you meet that's got a fancy title and a funny hat. Uh, I'm not saying that at all. But put them in their proper historical context, and I think it kind of gives us the needed per, uh, slanting or perspective shifts that, that come along with this. 
and I'll say this on the positive side, because I don't want it to sound like I'm denigrating the charismatic or the evangelical contingencies here. You want robust schools of thought. You do not want to ignore what the Holy Spirit's quickened through history. You take, take a guy like Wesley and Whitfield, who disagree with each other over issues of predestination, but they, agree, they did agree with each other on evangelism and on the need for personal conversion and on the need for preaching. I mean, Whitfield was the catalyst to get Wesley to do the vulgar, as he calls it in his journals, vulgar thing of field preaching. Because at the time, the church was in such a way that you did church things in the building. You didn't do them outside. Well, historically, I can understand that, but I think that's a bit too restrictive. So you take Wesley and Whitfield's methodology, and you figure out how to incorporate that in a present situation. I was telling a buddy of mine yesterday, evangelists, right? Evangelists in general. They tend to be, especially immature evangelists, the most anti-institutional kinds of people you're going to meet because they think the institution is a bad word and the hierarchy is always out to get them. And they're not really moving in the spirit because they're just, they won't do anything. And so they make the church, the quote, established church, their adversary instead of recognizing that, no, those pastors and teachers and disciple makers, those, those apostles, those people that are leading the church are actually the ones you want in your corner. So temper your zeal with a little bit of wisdom, get their backing. And when you go out and you gather crowds of hundreds of people who are being baptized and then filled with the Holy Spirit and healed of their diseases, they can actually be converted and become strong churches because you're maintaining a connection with the church. We see that. I mean, I see that stuff a lot with with guys who have those evangelical gifts. And so, you know, and who am I as a priest to tell bishops what to do? Um, But I can say that if a bishop finds the, the, the people in his diocese that he knows are evangelists, give them some sort of ministry capacity directly connected to your office so that they don't feel slowed down by certain pastoral temperaments of, that many rectors have. And you've got the capacity to have a church planning movement that is incredible because you know those evangelists will be to a certain extent, like Philip, they're not there to screen out Simon Magus. They don't have those gifts, but to gather gather people who are really being converted and Simon Maguses who pretend to be, well, then my, my beloved father and God show up as the bishop and look over those people being confirmed and take your freedom to shut some of them out if you need to, right? I mean, this is all part of it. And I, and I think that trickles down to the same thing for rectors. All right, rector, who are the evangelists in your congregation? Don't give them something they're responsible for in the church. Just tell them to go out and make, make disciples and then, or make converts. And you create the infrastructure in your particular parish to facilitate those conversions. And if you don't know how to do that, call the guy down the road. But that all, but that all goes back to having a bishop who is open to that and not threatened. Right. right. So, and I think that's, and you initially had talked earlier about this, the schisms and stuff, but it's you, but it, so many times I felt like those schisms came because those in leadership were not willing to listen to the spirit and who were locked into their own way. Mm-hmm. And the people said, what can we do? Um, because many times, well, you can't pray out a bishop typically unless they're right. in, <laughs> unless they're found in some disorder. So the curia just decided to slip something in your food. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, right on. I, I think that happens in history. I think that's one of the lessons to take away from Wesley and, and the evangelical re- revival is that I think he moved too quick um, with Thomas Koch and a couple others to to lay hands on Francis Asbury. He should have waited a couple months for the Scots to ordain Samuel Seabury like they did. Mm-hmm. Having said that, do I understand um, 
Wesley's frustration that the bishops were not moving and weren't getting stuff done. Absolutely. And so the schism isn't often it's not laid on one party. But at some point, especially now that it's been how many hundreds of years, how do you put how do you bring them back together? And that, that ought to be a a labor that we work towards. And this is where if we have if we keep our Anglican um Catholicity here of a, of a big tent where we want those schools to be studying and, and praying and, and working together and creating their pieties, we can, we can instill the, the insistence of, uh, or, or the intent of purpose. Like there's intentionality here, very purposefulness, a great purposefulness, without making them antithetical. So you can get a group of capital R Reformed Anglicans who are in many ways functionally cessationists except for the graces that come through the sacraments. And you can get a third wave charismatic that I don't know. Did we talk about third wave charismatic? You, Not really. No. no, you can get third wave charismatics, which like John Wimber's uh, camp was uh, Peter Wagner called them the beginning of the third wave. You can get their take on things, which is and often very different, but put them in, but put them together in the same room and sit them both down at the feet of the fathers of the church for the first 500 years and see if they can't leave that room. One with their own piety still in place with their own particularities, but then with a greater appreciation one for the other. And so they can come out and say, you know what? I've met so-and-so on the street. I think you need to go see that, that group. There's ways to do that that are very helpful. And so when we think about these streams or these schools, often they get pitted against each other, and they shouldn't be. So to kind of con- conclude, I, Caleb's looking at the clock, um, to kind of conclude, I, that's one of the things we want to do here at Ascension is to intentionally live into fullness of our Catholicity that we've inherit, received, knowing that the Holy Spirit has worked these moves in recent Christian history that are very particular because he's quickening things that had grown quiet and died off in certain ways. We want personal conversion. We want that evangelical, I am responsible to God. Whether that's coming like Luther got it through the confessional, which we do that here, or it's coming through the proclamation of the word like Latimer insisted when he was preaching, or it's coming through Whitfield's field ministry when we go out to the tent, you know, at the fair, we do that. We want the charismatic side. We want the Holy Spirit to work. We don't want to be caught up in our own emotions, right? But we want legitimate miracles, signs, wonders that we can't explain that point to the power of the resurrected Christ. Either he's the head of the body or he's not. And if he is, we need to get our opinions out of the way and let him do the great work he loves to do. And the, the best way to, to see those movements fully realized is by living into Catholicity in its completeness. Then our church that we had in Tennessee, that was one of the things, because we were in a hub of Pentecostal environment, and here we come in being liturgical and basically Anglican, and really... And I forget, oh, it took us at least four years for people to get to know us. And every time we try to tell them, says, our goal is to show that there can be a movement in regards to being fully charismatic, fully liturgical, and not lose the integrity of either one. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, when we had students come from the Pentecostal school, they said, we've never experienced anything like this. We see how it works. And, you know, and so many of them, after they left, they came back and said, we cannot find a church that was like this one. Hmm. You know, that the receiving of the Eucharist as a sacrament, as instead of an ordinance, and saying, you know, it's so important to us now. We want to find those. Father Mitch, you were not wearing skitty jeans. 
during this process, were you? <laughs> no, I wasn't. No. no. Uh, growing up, I was wearing husky jeans. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, all right. You, I, I do think that the anchoring point of all three of these is the table, is the altar, is, is yes. the Eucharist. Yes. Yes. Um, because I see, I see people who are Catholic but do not consider themselves charismatic, but will be like, well— when someone's receiving the Eucharist, who am I to say what can and can't happen? Yeah. Right. Or I, I've seen evangelicals who, you know, on the other side of things, they're like, well, yeah, that's a personal experience. Like, the real presence of Christ. Like, that is extremely yeah, personal. And, like, I really do think that for these three to be married beyond a single generation, like, multi-generationally be tied together, like— so that they're intricately part of a mo- like of what is actually happening. Like, I think it has to be centered around mm-hmm. the table. Yes. Like yes. it. There's no other way to do it because we've seen where others have have gone and de-emphasized that um, I guess aspect or like have de-emphasized and what happens is it just completely goes to the wayside. And with that does come other like second, third, fourth effects. Like logically, if this is the real presence of Christ then what does that mean for what's happening in the service? What does that mean for church governance? Uh, what does that mean for just the ontology of man? Like right. it, it really, it, it, but that has to be the anchor because it, when that is the anchor, it has such well, like the ripple effects that rip through everything else. I really think puts everything in the proper place where it should be. And it's, yes. and it's unifying. It brings people together so that even if they don't use the same terminology, they say, I agree with that. Like I can get, I, I can respect that and we can be in fellowship. I think this goes into the concept of the apostolic preaching. Okay. So we know, well, as evangelicals, we have strong commitment to the, to the word of God as the word of God written 39 articles. We, we, strong. This is the word of God. Not because I believe, not because I have a subjective feeling. This is objectively God's word written. Right. But we recognize the Catholic means, the historical means, by which the church discerned it, because they didn't all have copies of the same text, okay? But everywhere where the church was, even when they were disagreeing over what text should be the New Testament, they all had the apostolic succession. They all celebrated the Eucharist. They all celebrated baptism. They all anointed the sick to pray for them. They all—you cannot—when you put it—the locus of the kingdom is the Eucharist. And it's the outflow from the Eucharist and all the composite parts around it that sustain, create, and nourish the church. You can't escape that. And when that's that's when that's your university, the Eucharist is a university. Well, then let's see what God's giving particular graces towards movement-wise. Yeah. To me, I think it comes down to mainly, and it's that same concept. I think of like all things to all men, but I think it comes down also to that need versus want kind of argument where. You could have the individual they would want to have maybe more charismatic or more traditional. I need this to be more rooted, more sound. But the hard thing to come to grips with is the fact of how it's done, of course. Like, these, all these things are necessary. This is all the things that you kind of need when you want to form. What is it to be, I think, Christian, if you want to use it that way. I think there's probably a better word to use. But, but you have to be all these things in combined. And obviously, we can see through the history where, like, the char- where the parts kind of go way too far. Even yeah. when it comes to the traditional, it comes to every single, if you want to still go, I'll say whatever, school of thought, they always go too far. So you always want to bring that back, cut back and see where can we actually finally tune that. 
But I think that's one of the biggest things even for me is because like even when I sit there and say I'd rather go fully into the traditional, I'd rather go fully into that, and I'd just be okay with that. But it's like no, you need to also go into the charismatic part right. as well. You do need to look in those things, and you need to be because the bigger the other part of it I think of too is just as you were saying before, it's like the reaction of Paul's sweat and the cloth when it comes to the culture. It's if you want to have your future generations, guess what? The culture is going to have different issues that are going to rise right. up. And it's not for the fact you have to keep changing to always adapt to the culture. It's the fact that you need to stay steady in what you were of all these three streams so that no matter what the culture comes up with, you are all things to all men in that aspect. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's kind of if, – if anybody's trying to look towards the different parts of it and look at it, I would say that's what I try to do. That was my – that's maybe my advice. I don't know. Take it or leave it. I don't, you're not going to hurt my feelings. But you want to go through all these things and see that how to be the level, you know, individual. I think that's one of the Catholic errors through history. Catholicity, Catholic, Catholicly, if that's a word, speaking, is the restriction of the Holy Spirit to the understanding. And so you end up with the church persecuting evangelical awakening and charismatic awakening because it's something that is not congruent with either their temperament or their particular understanding. And so they see an adversary where they should see a friend. And this is where we want to emphasize the three of these things, understanding what they are rightly, and then emboldening ourselves to be purposeful about it and recognize these they're not antithetical, which is what I, I think you're yeah. echoing. Yeah. And they really can't exist with each other. Like I, I even, I look at our own, um, sir, like even the, um, our own diocese and the diversity that is there. Yeah. Um, Bishop John has done a wonderful job at creating and permitting that diversity. Yeah, I think that, and that's a big part because these conversations can happen. Well, I mean, even this podcast that we're having right now yeah. can happen a lot of times because of the, the the liberty to have openly differing ideas. Like I think that openly differing ideas is extremely important because it allows truly for iron to sharpen iron. Yeah, maybe you can wear those skinny jeans, but you can wear them under the robe. <laughs> I don't see that. I, I don't think you're ever going to see no. our bishop wearing skinny jeans. I, I, I'm I, not. <laughs> Mine ripped two weeks ago. Oh, okay. <laughs> but uh, I think I think we hit this topic pretty well. Uh, yeah. This I think this went pretty well. Uh, anything else anybody want to add? Or all right. Well. Thank you for listening. Once again, I'm Caleb, and I'm here with... I'm Father Mitch. Adam. And I'm Daryl. And we'll see you all next week. <laughs>